Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, how you doing? And a good morning to you. Hang on just a minute because I'm sticking peanut butter <laughs> in a bone <laughs> for my dog. Uh, hi. Uh, welcome. Actually, that was uh, uh, Bree in, in Malaysia had suggested last time the dog started barking, put peanut butter in a bone. Now, we do do that, but here, there you go. Okay. Sorry. The uh, the time just sort of crept up on me there, guys. Uh, welcome to another uh, isolated Lynn Cullen Still Live show. Um, this is April 20th during the horrible year of 2020. So it's 4 20 20 Ooh, 420. Isn't that when everybody's supposed to smoke pot? 420 2020. There you go. Um, welcome to it. <laughs> hey. So how you doing? I had a, boy, it's weird how you have good days and bad days. Yesterday was a, I could not function yesterday. I was, I was just counting. I mean, I was doing time is what I was doing uh, yesterday. It's odd how that, uh, that can happen. (laughs) And then I woke up this morning in a, in a much better mood and, uh, I don't know, guys. I hope you're all. I hope we'll all be okay after this. We're certainly not going to be who we were before. We're going to be changed, altered, and uh, let us hope that mostly that's for the best. So, what's there to talk about? <laughs> uh, let me note first um, the passing of uh, of a great uh, Pittsburgher. Uh, and that is Paul O'Neill. Um, he was CEO here for many, many years at Alcoa. Um, but he had just an extraordinarily distinguished career as a true leader and public servant, I'm very concerned with um, issues of health and, and safety. And the work he did um, on a volunteer basis in that regard is is really extraordinary. Um, I want to note that the uh, obituary in the local paper, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, uh, screwed up a, a fact, which is was, I mean, when I read it, I thought, what? <laughs> what? What? That can't be. That can't be. And of course it isn't because uh, they were wrong. Uh, In the obituary, they extraordinarily say that uh, Paul O'Neill was the uh, Treasury Secretary. Well, here, I have it right here. Served as Treasury Secretary under President George H.W. Bush for 11 months when he was fired. 
I I read that and I thought, H.W. Bush, no, no, no. But, you know, you doubt yourself. It was not H.W., it was his father. I mean, his son, Jesus Christ, Um, his son, W., lose the H. And he famously uh, left the White House uh, because he just felt like there was, he was useless there. Um, His speaking his own mind as the Treasury Secretary appeared to be disloyalty to uh, the president and Dick Cheney, the vice president. And um, when he was told to get the hell out, he was told that he should say on his way out, as is the way in the political and the uh, and the corporate world, he should say that he had decided uh, to uh, return to private uh, life. Uh, and O'Neill said, "Bull, I'm not saying that." Uh, he said, uh, well, here's the quote he said. He said, I'm too old to begin telling lies now. People who knew, know me well would say it isn't true. Yeah, so he was not willing to say, oh, yes, I wanted to spend more time with my family. He was a, he was a truth teller, a totally unpretentious guy. And here's how I know that. Um, I was grocery shopping one day and it was where the Giant Eagle Market District on Center Avenue in Shadyside is now. If that's Shadyside, it might be Oakland. I don't know where that, what that is considered. And it wasn't a Giant Eagle at the time. It was called the Food Gallery. Uh, I believe in, it was unbelievably an independent grocer, and it was a very nice store. The food gallery, I think, is what it was called. And I was up, going up and down the aisles, and uh, on one turn, dang, if I didn't pretty much bump little carts with uh, Paul O'Neill, who at the time was the Secretary of the Treasury. I mean, you don't expect to bump into a major cabinet secretary doing grocery shopping. I mean, you just don't. But in some ways, I I just smiled at him and nodded. I didn't want to bother him. But I thought, that's just perfect. It just dovetailed with everything I knew and had heard about this guy that he was salt of the earth, that he was a straight talker. And that's all you need to know of why he did not survive in a Republican administration at the cabinet uh, level. As a matter of fact, when he um, left uh, as Treasury Secretary, um, a book was written by... um, Named Suskind, right? Ron Suskind, and it it was at the time a really, really uh, bestseller because it talked about the inner workings of this 
of W's White House. And it talked about how O'Neill said going to a cabinet meeting was, was absurd. It was like an exercise, and it had all been done. Everything had been decided. Uh, there, it's not as though he was sitting there because his, uh, his thoughts uh, or opinions on something were wanted. No, he was there as a rubber stamp. Um, and at the time, this just was so scandalous and outrageous. But he was a truth teller. And uh, one of the things that, that he said in, um, let me see if I can find it here. One of the things that he said about sitting in those cabinet uh, briefings was this, which I loved. Um, he said, being uh, at cabinet meetings uh, presided over by President Bush was, quote, like a blind man in a room full of deaf people. There is no discernible connection. Paul O'Neill, a good man. I think a fearless man. Married to his high school sweetheart from his high school in Anchorage, Alaska. His dad was in the military, so he he grew up on a lot of different bases. A good man. And uh, he's exactly the kind of no-bullshit, straight-talking leader that we could use right now that we are, of course, sadly lacking, missing, and uh, to our detriment. Is the caller still there, Amy, I hope? Hello, caller. Hey, good morning, Lynn. Hi. Hey, Lynn, I could probably call in for some good information. I'm not going to get negative. You mentioned Paul O'Neill. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've run a safety training company for about since 1992. Ah. He is the ultimate god of yes. safety. Yes. If you could put a person who's picture on, the, if you could deify anybody for safety, a true safety engineer, right. true, he went into Alcoa and there was accident rate was, I just read the I tried this morning, 1.85 or 2 per 100,000. He came into this large multi-billion dollar corporation and said, "What's going on here?" They said, "Well, just that's accepted part of how we do business. There's going to be a there's going to be a few deaths per per hundred thousand workers. Just put that into the paperwork. Put that into the build build that into the into the mix." And he, Paul and Neil are building in death into the mix. And people are like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, well, we that's the numbers. So, so, so then, though, Neil, think about that. Think what you said. You're just building into the fact that you're going to kill people, right? essentially what you're saying. And they're like, well, like nobody's ever thought that before. Like, what do you mean? Well, because that is, that is acceptable. And in fact, I think it was just last week I was saying that the um, – I forget which federal agency decided to relax certain um, regulations on something and acknowledge that it would result in – 
I forget how many thousands more premature deaths in the country, but that that was considered, you know, hey, hey, that's okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. See, what Paul O'Neill actually did when he went to, I think he was in India or Brazil, and the third, one of these old, this is when he was, the, when he was in, in charge of Alcoa, went in there and said they were having problems with, with safety. Yeah. Paul O'Neill went down there and flew down there in a plane. He met with these people. He said, what's going on here? They said, well, we're told to get, we want to get the products out to market, and sometimes people were rushing here to get things out, out the door, and there's a lot of accidents. O'Neill said, there's not going to be no more. I'm the president. I'm in charge. Stop. Yeah. We're going to have meetings with everybody here. You know, if he I worked, with he worked here with um, the hospitals here. He was on the board of UPMC until he wasn't, because <laughs> that, too, was an organization that he learned to loathe. And he really did not, he and Jeffrey Romoff did not get along because Romoff values profits, not people. And that's not how O'Neill operates. So that was a huge schism that happened. He worked with Allegheny General Hospital in getting down rates of infection in, uh, I believe, their ICUs and had extraordinary success, saved lives. He wasn't getting paid for any of this. This was a no. passion, a passion for him. Worked with the Jewish Healthcare Foundation to do all of this kind of, uh, to get better outcomes, to have uh, less infections in, um, in hospital settings. He was so far ahead of everything. Exactly. And, and he was, again, the unpretentiousness. When he got here to Alcoa, um, you know, he, he hated the fact that, you know, he, he sat in this huge office at the top of the, the big Alcoa uh, building, you know, like a king. And um, he ended up, of course, creating that beautiful undulating building on the river, and right. he made it Opened. open. Open. He right. had the exact square footage allotted to him as every other employee, and he sat at the middle of a huge room, no walls, with people bustling around him. <laughs> God bless Paul O'Neill. Exactly. One yeah. last thing. When he was on okay. the lines in the manufacturing plant, then I'll be done talking. Okay. He would tell people, if you see any production, if you see a problem where safety is at issue, stop the line. I give any employee, stop the line, stop the thing, stop it. Before we just run it, somebody got hurt. They didn't stop the line. Somebody wow. did get hurt, I think, one time, and, and, and O'Neill flew down there and he said, I told you guys, I'm here. You call me on the phone. If anybody tells you, keep the line rolling. Because anybody, and most people bullshit. They say, they say shit, they don't mean it. Paul O'Neill lived, the, he walked the walk and talked the talk. Right. That's all we're looking for in a leader. One more positive thing I'm going to say, Joe Biden all the way, because what a contrast. Contrast that his leadership style, he's not the brightest, but he definitely has the heart to do the job. Joe Biden, contrast him to another president who's currently resigning in the administration right now. Contrast the two. You're going to see 
at election time, there's AC and BC, or AC, there's before coronavirus BC and after coronavirus AC. The whole world's going to change. It's changing right now and evolving. The creme de la creme will be in six months or however time November comes around. You're going to see, it's, it's happening right now, cataclysmic changes. That's going to be the cherry on top of the cake. Finally, finally, we'll get some, well, some, some responsibility. Back let's hope. Let's hope. We'll hey, well. thank you. Thank you very Thanks, much. Lynn. Talk to you. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, this damn server. Excuse me. Um, anyway, um, okay, so God bless him, Paul O'Neill, great man, great man. That's all there is to it. <laughs> As opposed, you know, to now what we've uh, we've got going. By the way, uh, there apparently will be one of these uh, protests of the uh, of the stupid in uh, and reckless in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania's capital, uh, today. And um, man, I just hope that uh, media cover these things uh, in contextually. Uh, every poll shows Americans, even a majority of Republicans, are fearful of reopening too soon. They are listening to the epidemiologists who say it would be a disaster. So all of a sudden, isn't this amazing? This, you know, grassroots, this coming outrage out of the, out of the heartland, right? It's bullshit. These groups are funded by big money, Republican money, uh, a la Koch brother stuff. And, Many of these organizations are anything but homegrown. For for instance, the guy who's behind the the uh, protest uh, that will happen in Harrisburg today is uh, the result of of organizing um, very quickly uh, after founding a Facebook group uh, that's called something like. Uh, uh, Pennsylvanians against excessive quarantine. Well, what's interesting about Pennsylvanians against excessive quarantine is the guy who founded it isn't a Pennsylvanian, of course. He's the same guy behind Wisconsinites uh, uh, against excessive quarantine and Ohioans against excessive quarantine. There are three brothers, three brothers that are behind most of us. They have um, they have a pretty big presence on right wing social media, specifically anti gun control social media. Uh, at, and they have an organization. I forget the name of that one, but that organization is um, was founded because they found the National Rifle Association too liberal. <laughs> uh, yeah. So these guys are way to the right of the NRA, and they are behind these, they are the bigger players behind all of these so called just 
spontaneous kinds of eruptions of idiots. I mean, when you see, and they're putting out propaganda that tells people to show up without masks, bring your children. I even saw one sign that said, even if you're sick, you're welcome, come. You know, I don't know. Lemmings. Lemmings. And you would think at some point Trump would not want to kill off his own base like this. It's, it's, uh, it's just astonishing. Astonishing. Oh, man. Okay. Now, um, I came upon a story that is so mind-blowing. Um, it reads like a bad movie, or maybe a good movie. It's a thriller. I mean, your heart's pounding as you, as you read this. And uh, this, uh, this comes after a letter was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the letter was by a um, a guy who who heads or uh, is responsible for procurement of equipment at a Massachusetts hospital. And he wrote a letter that is mind blowing about trying to get needed equipment for his hospital so that they could treat COVID-19 patients and protect their own people. And this letter shows how the federal government is actively working not to help but in fact, the opposite, to hinder. Let me, I'm just going to read part of this letter that was written. Now, the New England Journal of Medicine is, you know, a sober publication, to say the least. And so this is not some radical lefty publication that said, man, we've got to let our people know it. This guy's, and it turns out that whatever happened to this guy is happening all over the place. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he told the New England Journal of Medicine. Our supply chain group has worked around the clock to secure gowns, gloves, face masks, goggles, face shields, and N95 respirators. These employees have adapted to a new normal, exploring every lead, no matter how unusual, deals, some bizarre and convoluted, and many involving large sums of money, have dissolved at the last minute when we were outbid or outmuscled, sometimes by the federal government. Then we got lucky. But Actually, getting the supplies was not easy. A lead came in from an acquaintance of a friend, 
After several hours of vetting, we grew confident of the broker's professional pedigree and the potential to secure a large shipment of three-ply face masks and N95 respirators. Now, understand, you, you see, there are people out there now who are scamming the hell even out of hospitals, desperate hospitals, who are out are competing with each other as as you've heard governors say, states competing, outbidding each other, desperate to save their residents because there is no federal response. So you get this incredible, finally you break through, and my God, this guy's got respirators, and is he legit? So you go through all that, desperately trying to figure that out. And he, he said, we received samples to confirm that they, they, the respirators could be successfully fit tested. And despite having cleared this hurdle, we remained concerned that the samples might not be representative of the bulk of the products that we were actually buying. Imagine all this anxiety. And you're, you're paying four times what you would normally pay, 10 times what you would normally pay, and you're buying a pig in a poke, and lives are hanging in the balance. Then this guy says, having acquired the requisite funds, more than five times the amount we would normally pay for a similar shipment, but still less than what was being requested by other brokers, we set the plan in motion. Listen to this. This is where it starts sounding like a, a thriller. Three members of the supply chain team and a fit tester were flown to a small airport near an industrial warehouse in the mid-Atlantic region. I arrived by car to make the final call on whether to execute the deal. Two semi-trailer trucks, cleverly masked as food service vehicles, met us at the warehouse. When fully loaded, the trucks would take two distinct routes back to Massachusetts to minimize the chances that their contents would be detained or redirected. This is a hospital trying to get equipment and they are using disguised trucks going different routes lest they be essentially hijacked by federal agents. I'm sorry if I'm screaming. The letter, this is published again in the New England Journal of Medicine, goes on to say this. Hours before our planned departure, we were told to expect only a quarter of our original order. We went anyway, since we desperately needed any supplies we could get. Upon arrival, we were jubilant to see pallets of K94 respirators and face masks being unloaded. We opened several boxes, examined their contents, and hoped that this random sample would be representative of the entire shipment. But before we could send the funds by wire transfer, Two FBI agents arrived. 
showed their badges, and started questioning me. No, no, I told them this shipment is not headed for resale or the black market. The agents checked my credentials, and I tried to convince them that the shipment of PPE was bound for hospitals. After receiving my assurances and hearing about our health system's urgent needs, these agents let the boxes of equipment be released and loaded into the trucks. But I was soon shocked to learn that the Department of Homeland Security was not satisfied and was still considering redirecting our supplies. He ends up having to get in touch with his Congress person. The congressperson was able to make quick calls to Homeland Security. And finally, as he says, I remained nervous and worried on the long drive back, feelings that did not abate until well past midnight when I received the call that the shipment was secured at our warehouse. Now, this is horrifying. This guy expected interference in his life-saving, in his, his life-saving mission. He expected interference from the federal government, the FBI, Homeland Security. And so there's all this disguising trucks and different routes, desperate to avoid that. This happens and is happening as we speak. Last month, it is known that 3 million masks ordered by the state of Massachusetts were seized by the federal government. The governor of Illinois is arranging secret chartered flights of supplies as his way of outmaneuvering the feds. It's been likened to the wild, wild west. And even if you've managed to find supplies, managed to find bushel barrels of money to pay for the supplies, you still are nowhere assured that you are going to be able to then get the supplies to where you want them to be. A reporter in Chicago trying to find out more about what the governor's chartered private flights said this, a source knowledgeable about the flights told the paper that the governor did not want to be more open about the shipments, quote, because we have heard reports of Trump trying to take PPE in China and when it gets to the United States. I don't understand this. So 
New York Magazine um, writing about this says, this is not just the federal government telling states they are on their own, as obviously has been told to them repeatedly, but it is showing that they will even go so far as to try to handicap and, in fact, hijack supplies that these desperate governors and hospital procurement people are trying to make. New York Magazine says, in itself, it is a moral outrage, demonstrating incredible political sadism, given that states lack the resources of the federal government. The feds know that in many cases, states are legally barred from deficit spending, which means that in a time like this, a time of horrible crisis, they are functionally unable to respond. This is when a federal government is to step in as the backstop. But instead, we have Jared Kushner telling us that the federal stockpile is for the federal government. What does that mean? New York Magazine says you could call it piracy, you could call it sanctions. The federal government is choking supply chains to states like it choked supply chains to Iran. <laughs> this, is, this is federal interference of the kind that we use against enemy nations. What could be the purpose? What possibly could be the purpose? It's inexplicable. It's indefensible. The fact is, is we do we need some more journalism on this. We do not know what's happening to the supplies the feds are grabbing. We don't know on what grounds they are being seized or threatened with seizure. What business does the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA, which is another one that's grabbing these things, have with ventilators and PPE purchases by governors and by local hospitals? David Frum wrote about this. This is like a story out of the last days of the Soviet Union. This is, this is what it means to be a failed state. It is hard to come to any conclusion other than this is just, we have got the most corrupted sort of 
mafia-like government exerting controls for the sake of control, uh, not in spite of, but because of the demand, the crisis-led demand, and squeezing uh, the American people as they lie dying in hospital beds or attending to the sick and dying and terrified with inadequate protection. This is your government. Under Trump and his Republican enablers. It is mind-blowing. We have a caller. Caller, go ahead, please. Mike in D.C. Hi, Mike. Hi, it's Mike in D.C. Hi, hi. How are you? I'm good. Um, so a friend of mine has a theory about why they're um, gathering states, blue states, masks. And that's because, number one, the federal stockpile is almost out. And they want to have a stockpile for when the red states start to get hit really bad. And that everything that's happening now is to prepare the red states for when they get it. And it's you know, stealing what? Stealing, you're saying, wait, stealing from the blue states, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Illinois, stealing from the blue states so that they can possibly hold numbers down in the red states that are behind this curve still. Right. So that they can offer, because the federal, the federal bank of them are almost depleted. And they don't like that, obviously, because when the red states start to get it, they won't have any support for them. So that's one theory. Yeah. And I think there's some merit to it. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, the White House has been very, I mean, very open about how Trump will send more money and aid to, yeah, governors who he likes. He openly calls for, like, insurrection against governors he doesn't like. I mean, we have a president now who is calling for rebellion in the some of the states of these United States. You can't, is that not, I'm sorry, is that not um, treason? The president cannot break the law. Where were you three months ago? Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, I'm, I'm Don't just Don't you remember? My, yeah, I know, I know. I'm getting the my president cannot commit treason out. because he's the president. Oh, my God, my God, my God. Oh, my God, my God. Well, I'm getting. I want to know how the FBI knew about that transport. That's how plugged in. So people who think, oh, I'm going to have a VPN on my computer and the FBI is not going to know, please, please. The FBI just happened to show up at this nondescript place with all that covert action they took. They know everything about everybody. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. I'm, I, you know, if, if you're not afraid, then you're, you're not paying attention. Um, I'm trying to see what the definition of treason is. So wait a minute. Um, it's just if you start reading the Constitution, um, it's 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 frightening. Uh, yeah, what powers that this jerk does have? 
but he's grabbing powers he doesn't have. And he's fomenting revolution. Here it is. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Well, wait a minute. Trump calling for the liberation of, you know, name the states, he's done it too. That's not, is that not uh, adhering uh, to the enemies of the states and giving them aid and comfort? Is he not openly doing that? The problem with your initial statement is, read. You said, um, don't they read, can't we read the definition of treason? Or can't we read the Constitution? No, nobody reads. Reading is for losers. TikTok is for cool people. Nobody uh, reads. The president doesn't even read. No, he's never read the Constitution. Do you think, I know that. But Right, and do you think he'd ever say to an aide, get me the definition of treason? You know what I'm saying? So this, our, our democracy is based on the fact that a portion of us will vote and be educated on the facts. If that portion keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, you don't have to be a genius to see that the democracy won't survive. Listen to this. I'm still on the Constitution here. Okay. The United States shall guarantee to every state... Uh, a Republican form of government, obviously, doesn't mean Republic, a Republican form of government, and shall protect each state against invasion. Well, and the governor doesn't compliment the president. Yeah. Isn't there a clause like that in there? No. <laughs> and, I mean, you have a guy who's literally calling for the, Yeah invasion of of these states oh my god so we are really effed unbelievable so that's all i got i don't know frightening yep frightening yeah all right thank you Uh, this came uh, over the transom. It's from the Atlantic. I'll read it. Some of you might like it. Some of you might not. I don't care. It's a prayer. The coronavirus prayer. And it's by, who cares, James Parker. Dear Lord, in this our hour of doorknobs and droplets, when masks have canceled our personalities, in this our hour of prickling perimeters, sinister surfaces, defeated bodies and victorious abstractions, when some of us are stepping into rooms humid with contagion, and some of us are standing in the pasta aisle, in this our hour of vacant parks and boarded up hoops, when we miss the sky-high roar of the city and hear instead the tarp that flaps on the unfinished roof, 
the squirrel giving his hinge-like cry, and the siren constantly passing. To you, we send up our prayer. Let not heebie-jeebies become our religion, our new ideology with its own jargon. Fortify us, Lord. Show us how. What would your saints be doing now? St. Francis, he was a fan of the human. He'd be rolling naked on Boston Common. He'd be sharing a bottle, no mask, no gloves, shielded only by burning love. But I don't think we're in the mood for feats of antic beatitude. In New York and in Madrid, the saints maintain the rumbling grid. Bless the mailman and equally bless the bus driver, vector of steadfastness. Protect the bravest, the best we've got. Protect the rest of us. Why not? And if the virus that took John Prine comes as it may for me and mine, although we've mostly stayed indoors, well, then, as ever, we're all yours. That is the coronavirus prayer. And the prayer, of course, alludes to the bravest, the people who are heading into the humid contagion. And I have pointed out, certainly more than once, and with some fervor and anger, that the people who now we understand are essential to the functioning of our society and to our very lives are invariably the people we value the least. In terms of how we, as a capitalist culture, value anything, value is monetary and is reflected in monetary means. So if you're just getting minimum wage, obviously you are not considered particularly valuable. Until, until we got a pandemic. And then we find out that the people we've been hounding, like farm workers, undocumented farm workers, who our president would tell you are illegal alien murderers, all of a sudden they now are essential. As are home care workers who get nothing. As are the people who take care of the old, infirm, in nursing homes. How would you like to be working in a nursing home in this? Getting paid less than men minimum wage, because that is a crap job. All of a sudden, it's essential. So we see now what is essential. And you know what we see too? The vast majority of these essential workers are, guess what? They're women. 
And even more than that, they're women of color. They are people of color and they are women, the essential workers, the people who get crapped on with regularity by the white men who are not so essential, but who are valued in the way capitalism values you. Nearly nine out of 10 nurses and nursing assistants are women. The vast majority of respiratory therapists, over 80%, are women. A majority of pharmacists are women. An overwhelming majority of pharmacist aides and technicians are women. More than two-thirds of the grocer grocery store checkouts are women and fast food workers are women. Yes, men make up a majority of workers in a number of essential sectors like law enforcement, transit, public utilities, but there are simply nowhere near as many of those jobs as there are in the industry at the forefront, which is dominated by women, and that is health care. There are 19 million health care workers in this country. That's three times as many as there are in agriculture, law enforcement, and package delivery industry combined. And as I said, the vast majority of healthcare workers are women. There are four registered nurses for every police officer. And still, there are shortages of nurses. Women account for 73% of American healthcare workers who have been infected since the outbreak began. So when you hear that those who are trying to care for the sick and dying are themselves getting sick and dying, you have a number you can put on that now. 73% of them are women. Ninety plus percent of those who tend to the young, the old, the sick and infirm, the care workforce, these are women. Of the six million people working health care jobs that pay less than $30,000 a year, 83% are women. And half of them are non-white. These are the essential workers. These are the people who hold everything together. Will we continue to undervalue them when this is over? The way we value work is upside down. 
I've said it before this, upside down. The guy who picks up garbage is of more real value than a hedge fund manager. From the mouths of babes, listen to this. This was in the New York Times uh, yesterday. It's a quote from a little five-year-old in Pittsburgh. Her name is Aurora Ozanic. And I got to tell you, five-year-old Aurora Ozanic is one smart little thing. It says here that she is the daughter of a nurse, that's her mommy, and a construction worker, and that's her dad. And Aurora makes sense of her parents' job this way. This is what she told the New York Times reporter. Mommy fixes people. Daddy fixes things. From the mouths of babes, Aurora Ozanic, five years old. God bless her. Um, what we got here? Father Joseph says, when I was in college a thousand years ago, I had to Russian language as a minor, there was a phrase I learned. I'm not going to pronounce it right. Podstolum. That's a slang term for black market, for black market behavior that roughly means under the table. I had the opportunity to visit the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and what you describe reminds me of how one acquired things via pod stolen. Yeah, that's right. We have become, because it's a, we become a criminal uh, country. Our government is acting like a criminal enterprise. Hijacking health supplies. In fact, Father Joseph says those day in those days the local citizens accepted this as a way of life. I got news for you, they still do. You could wait on the state or go to the podstolum route to simply get it done. Yeah. 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 Oh god. Uh, Barbara has sent me this. He says the big, Eric Bollert is saying the big question is why? Why? One month into this crisis and we still don't know why Trump 
will not help key states secure desperately needed medical equipment. Or why he peddles this miracle cure. Not to mention his absurd briefings where he silences scientists and and spews lies and contradictions. Why did he purposefully ignore detailed intelligence warnings? Why did he place the totally unqualified Jared Kushner in charge of a national emergency? Why did he refuse to invoke the Defense Production Act? Or why, another why, why the government airlifted 18 tons of donated respirator masks, surgical mask gowns, and other medical supplies to China in February. If Trump had done just one of these things, it would have been considered uh, a shocking lack of leadership. But he's done them all. And still, most journalists do not ask that Question. The media's preferred storyline that simply suggests Trump is incompetent, it just doesn't add up because Trump has made the wrong decision every single time. It is increasingly not believable for the press to suggest Trump has been distracted or inept consistently. What could it be? There doesn't seem to be any ideological reason why Trump would want to oversee a monumental government failure. It it almost seems as if he just does not want to save people. Just himself. I... I don't know. I don't know. Oh my, the books that will be written. And the death toll is now what? It's over 40,000. He's so sure it's going to what? Stop at 60? I doubt it. We don't even have these red states, nor do we have the spike that will occur from all of these idiotic protests. It is like watching zombies. It's like watching zombies. That famous picture, and it will be, I bet it wins the Pulitzer, of those people at that window looking for all the world like the, yeah, the walking dead. Incredible. I want to share one more thing with you just because it's informational and rather well done, I thought. It is um, also from Sunday's New York Times, so some of you maybe have already read it. I just want to give you a little information from it. 
um, COVID-19, which is the illness caused by the coronavirus, is now the leading cause of death uh, in the United States. Um, it has killed <laughs> more Americans every day since April 7th than um, heart disease kills in a day, the cancer kills in a day. So those have been the number one and two. Uh, reasons for death, and it is now COVID-19. And you know, the fact that these idiot protesters are saying, they said it was going to be 240,000 deaths, and look, it's just 40. And what they don't get is it's just 40. (laughs) Because people abided by the stay-at-home directives. These fools. Without a vaccine, and by the way, it could well be they never find a vaccine. There are many viruses that have never, we've never found a vaccine. And we've never found one within two years of attempting it, okay? Without a vaccine, this virus will circulate for years. And yes, we already know it can come roaring back, even if it starts to wane a bit um, in the summer. Reputable longer-term projections for how many Americans will die uh, vary, but they are all grim. Uh, the virus eventually could reach 48 to 65 percent of all Americans. And if uh, we keep the fatality rate at just under 1 percent, that would mean it would kill almost 2 million Americans before this is done. Over time, right? At 1.7 million. And those are reputable longer term projections. Compare that to how many Americans died in World War II, okay? 420,000. Less than half a million. And we're talking about 1.7 million dying of this. Now, China's numbers, you know, we just don't know. We don't know how lethal this thing. China's numbers are, of course, un Um, well, you can't trust them at all. And if you do trust them, they've reported about 83,000 cases and 4,600 deaths, which makes their fatality rate over 5%. Now, if that's the case, then then we got, you know, 10 million uh, Americans dying. I mean, so we, we don't know. In fast-moving epidemics like this, uh, far more victims pour into hospitals or die at home than are ever tested. And at the same time, the mildly ill or asymptomatic never get tested. Those two factors distort our, the true fatality rate. We don't have a clue.
more from this special report, which I found frightening, but interesting. The virus may also be mutating to cause fewer symptoms. That would help it, right? In the movies, viruses become more deadly. In reality, they usually become less so because asymptomatic strains reach more hosts. Even the Spanish flu epidemic eventually faded into a seasonal flu. But at this time, we don't know. We don't know nothing. We don't know how transmittable it is. We don't know how lethal it is. And no one knows exactly what percentage of Americans have been infected so far. Um, estimates range from 3 to 10%. That's all. But it is likely a safe bet that at least 300 million of us are still uninfected. 300 million. So until a vaccine or another protective measure emerges there, that emerges, there is no scenario in which it is safe for us to suddenly come out of hiding. China recently closed all the country's movie theaters again. They had reopened. Singapore has closed all schools and non-essential workplaces. South Korea is struggling a bit now. And Japan recently declared a state of emergency. And those were all countries that had really rigorous measures in place and then relaxed them a little bit. The government, it says here, is going to have to invent some way to certify who is truly immune because you're going to have to be able to show you're immune to be out. Um, now, they mentioned that uh, Dr. Fauci has said um, the White House is considering certificates. You know, show me your papers. <laughs> your paper will say, yes, I have had uh, the virus. Um Germany is going that route, I guess. China uses cell phone QR codes. I don't know what those are linked to the owner's uh, personal details. And it turns out that the adult film industry in, in the porn industry in uh, California uh, pioneered a similar idea that what China is using for this um, over a decade ago. And that was that uh, porn actors – uh, had a cell phone app to prove that they uh, had tested HIV negative uh, in the last 14 days. And then producers of these porn films could verify the information on a password-protected website, which might be that now we're going to have to all do what those porn stars um, have, have done. You know, ultimately, getting a handle on how widespread this is, who's got it, who's had it, who's this, who's that, um, 
we got to do this contact tracking. We have to know. Um, but we are so, not only are we behind in testing, you can't do contact tracing until you do the testing. We don't even have the testing. The CDC itself has about 600 contract, contact tracers. It is estimated that we will need minimally 300,000. And just a two, few more factoids from this, I thought, really good Times piece. A public health crisis of this magnitude and because it's global, requires, of course, international cooperation. We're not in it alone. And in fact, scientists all over the world are, are, are cooperating, are working together. And we're seeing cooperation on a scale that we have not seen ever before, except our president. We got we have a president who is now defunding the only organization capable of coordinating a global response, the World Health Organization. And we have a president who, you know, when he's not making love to China, he's uh, antagonizing them. China, who is the dominant supplier of drugs and vaccines. What if they come up with the first vaccine and they start ramping up production? Who are they going to give that to? They have a choice. Would America be on the top of that list? Why would it be? And yet the GOP plan to reelect Trump is about antagonizing the Chinese further and blaming them. And then finally this, which we've alluded to as well. If you do an analysis on using Medicare data, census data, uh, and the data is on obesity and age. Those are two of the biggest factors, right, uh, for making someone vulnerable. Do that and do it for the whole country. You see that the most obese and the oldest Americans are congregated in states that voted for Donald Trump. They could well, these folks in the red states, these people who are now saying that the state can't control their bodies, (laughs) ask women if the state can control their bodies. The calculations are that it could well be the people living in those red states where governors did not act, where they're reopening soon, they could, in fact, be 30% more likely to die.
of the virus. So again, it brings us to that, why would Trump kill off his own base? The Allegheny uh, County Health Department's numbers are out for today. 1,042 confirmed cases in Allegheny County. Wow, and women are start are still continuing to be most of the... It's getting even more so. 54% of the cases are women. 45% are male, and that's... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about the gender of the death rate, though. They're just doing um, age breakdown. 55 uh, deaths are confirmed in Allegheny County. Lynn writes, the only reason I can think of as to why the administration is slowing down the distribution of these needed testing tools is because if there was widespread testing, then Americans would know how serious the problem is. <laughs> and that would delay reopening business. And people would be scared. And Americans would be afraid to return to work, and Trump doesn't want that to happen. Yeah, but they're going to return. I mean, if they open this too soon... There'll be this little lag, you know, right? Like three weeks, four weeks, and then, bam, we'll see this huge spike again. Incredible. Well, I think that's what I got for you today. And uh, thank you for being there. And um, I'll be back tomorrow, and uh, Susan will be joining us uh, from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay? Have a good day. Enjoy this sun if you can. feels so good. Okay? Be safe. Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.